2 Kings 5. 2 Kings 5. What do a slave girl, a Gentile captain, a wayward king, and a prophet's assistant have in common? Well, as we're going to see in chapter 5, they all had an opportunity to trust the Lord. No matter what our background is, what our social status might be, whether life is good or life is difficult, this is an opportunity that all of us, each of us have every day. And while we're here in chapter 5 of 2 Kings, we're smack dab in the middle of the section of Scripture that's kind of focusing on the prophet Elijah. The truth is, in this chapter, he's more of a background uh, character. The writer spends far more time looking at the character of these four other individuals. That's what 2 Kings is all about, covenants and character, looking at God's character and His faithfulness to His promises, looking at people's character, sometimes faithful, sometimes not. And so that's what we're going to see in this chapter. Two of these four individuals decide to trust God, and two of them don't with the opportunity that they're given. So chapter 5, we're going to look at the first individual here. In verse 1, it says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. But he was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. The first individual we see who has an opportunity to trust the Lord here is this slave girl. She's unnamed. But before it introduces us to her, it introduces us to her master. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable. This guy was highly favored. He was admired by his people. He was in good favor with his king, loved by his countrymen. Why? Well, it mentions first off, because by him, it says, a great deliverance was given unto Syria. The Lord gave a great deliverance to Syria. And that's interesting because the writer gives credit to this victory that Naaman's, you know, instrumental, and it gives credit to the Lord. We don't know who the battle was against, but whoever it was against, it, was, it is significant that the Lord's involved. I think sometimes when we read the Scripture, we can get the idea that God only cared about Israel. And here we see that, no, He was very involved, and He cared about things that were going on elsewhere. God is never detached from the affairs of unbelievers. Just as the mystery of iniquity we talked about this morning, the enemy's plan is at work in the world, well, so is the Lord. His plan is at work in the world as well. The difference, of course, is that the Lord's plans overrule the enemy's plans when they intersect. Well, in this case, the Lord didn't want Syria to be defeated, and He used this unbelieving commander, Naaman, to lead Syria to victory. So the king, he was in good favor with him, and he was loved by his people. The second reason, it says also, verse 1, that he was a mighty man of valor. He was an elite soldier in the Syrian army rising to this position of commander, but it mentions he was a leper. In other words, despite the fact that he had this debilitating disease, he was an elite soldier in his country's army and had risen to a position of authority. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a second, isn't leprosy where your body parts start falling off and stuff? How can you be a soldier if that's going on? Well, some forms of leprosy were not so severe that they would incapacitate a man uh, from military duties. In fact, if you read history, you'll find about famous men who were lepers, but you know, they fought in wars, or they were commanders or kings or things like that. 
And the truth is, leprosy, as far as being taboo, was kind of unique to the nation of Israel. They didn't have necessarily always have leper colonies in other cultures or other nations like Israel did. And so in Syria, clearly, it was not a problem that this guy was a leper. He was beloved because of his heroism and his leadership. But his leprosy must be getting worse. It must someday be something that will kill him. And so in verse 2, it mentions that there's this servant girl, and we're going to see that she has a love for him, even though she's a captive. It says in verse 2, and the Syrians had gone out by companies. The word companies there means raiding parties. And these raiding parties, their purpose was to get goods and to take slaves, to take captives. And so it says here that they had brought away captive out of the land of Israel. So this is a, an Israeli young lady, a little maid. Now, the phrase here, word here, little maid, it can refer to a female child of any age from infancy to one who's on the very steps of becoming an adult. I mean, so she could have been captured very young, but the point is, is that this is something that happened to her in her youth. I don't know how young she was, but she was ripped from her family, from her home, and she was forced to be a personal servant to Naaman's wife. She waited on Naaman's wife. But what's interesting, verse 3 tells us, is like Daniel would do later on when he was ripped from his home as a youth. It tells us here that she doesn't resent her captors. She makes the best of an awful situation, and she comes to love Naaman and his wife. And so in verse 3, she said unto her mistress, would God, which means if only, or oh how I wish that my Lord Naaman were with the prophet that is in Samaria, were with Elijah, for he would recover him of his leprosy. It's interesting, it tells us here that he was with his master, with his king. That's Naaman stood before the king in a place of honor. But what this slave girl wishes is that he stood before Elisha because Elisha would help him. Now, if we had read our Bibles and we had, for the first time came to chapter 5, we got to verse 3, and the author wrote, and nightly she cursed the name of her captors, prayed God would judge them so she could go back to her people, I think none of us would blame her or not understand But what's interesting about this chapter is that this entire story hinges upon a young woman who retained her trust in the Lord despite awful circumstances. The whole story hinges on it. There is no story here if this young woman who's in slavery does not decide to trust the Lord despite her awful circumstances. It has been very popular over the last couple decades for high-profile Christian leaders, worship leaders, things like that, blog, blog people, whatever they call them, to publicize that they are leaving the faith because they can't rectify a good God with the suffering they see around them. They believe that their profile, their influence, gives them a better view than the rest of us, and that they've seen much more than everyone else and are therefore qualified to come to this conclusion that a good God cannot be reconciled with the suffering we see in this world. Well, I don't know about you, but I've also heard and read of men and women throughout history who have gone through horrible suffering and terrible tragedy, yet have retained their confidence in God's character. So who's right? Well, I think at the very least we can say they're not for sure right. Turn to Psalm 119 with me because there's something interesting I see here. I've been in Psalm 119 in my devotions the last, I don't know, two weeks. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. There's 176 verses. I finish it tomorrow. But there's been a recurring theme that I keep seeing over and over and over again. 
Look at verse 51 with me. Psalm 119, verse 51. And I'm just going to read a bunch of verses to you. See if you can see the same thread I'm seeing. Psalm 119, 51. The proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not declined from your law. Look at verse 61. The bands of the wicked have robbed me, but I have not forgotten your law. Look at verse 69. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Verse 78. Let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without a cause, but I will meditate in your precepts. Verse 87. They had almost consumed me upon earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. Look at verse 95. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I did not err from your precepts. Verse 141, I am small and despised, yet do I not forget your precepts. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet your commandments are my delights. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet... I do not decline from your testimonies. And then verse 161. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. David is someone who understood what it meant to be horribly mistreated. He got that. He understood that. But he says here, I'm not going to leave your word. I'm not going to disbelieve what you say. I'm not going to all of a sudden critique your character. He clung to it. He clung to God and His ways. There is one perspective who would look at this girl's life, and they would say that God, if He existed, had failed her, that her life was stolen. Another perspective would say that They would see her as God's secret agent, kind of like Daniel, sent into enemy territory to minister the truth of God's faithfulness to people who would never have heard it otherwise. One perspective challenges the biblical claim that God is love. But another perspective says, well, these verses prove the claim that God is love. Because God would love Naaman and the Syrian people so much that he would let one of his own children be captured so they could preach the good news to them. Do you see the difference? Different perspective. And be honest with you, the second perspective, that God would be willing to sacrifice this young girl's life so that other people could hear the great news about him and enter into relationship with him and know him, that perspective sounds a lot more up God's alley to me because he's the one who didn't keep back his own son in order that we might be saved. And so next time you're frustrated with where God has allowed you to be, Remember that God loves other people enough to send you where they are. Say, I'm the only Christian at my job. All right, you're God's secret agent, right? Right? Well, well, he loves them enough that he, he didn't leave them abandoned. The world's most horrible thing you could say is there's no Christians at my job. Well, this young lady's faith and words are going to change Naaman's life forever. Look at verse 4. It says, one went in and told his Lord, so another servant overheard her, and went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. 
And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And so he departed, that's Naaman departed, and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. He gets word from another servant, hey, the girl that we got from the raid, she's, she's saying that there's a guy there who can help you. And so he goes to the king and he says, I hear there's a guy there that can help me. I'd like to go. And the king says, go to go. It means depart there. Go in. Get out of here. What are you still waiting here for? The king genuinely wanted Naaman to be healed and he wants him to leave right away. And he gives him this letter because a Syrian commander does not simply walk into Israel. Its black gates are guarded by more than just... Oh, wait, sorry, wrong book. Even if Israel and Syria were not at direct war with one another, any trip by a captain into Israel would be seen as an attempt to gather intelligence. And so this king's letter is going to show, hey, he's, he's genuinely here. He's a leper. He's looking for healing. Can you help him out? And Naaman's gift, of course, will be evidence of that as well. His gift is quite expensive. It's 10 talents of silver. There's no way to put a modern value on that gift, but that amount of silver was five times the amount that King Omri paid to purchase the hill of Samaria where this capital city was built. So, I mean, this is quite a bit of money, and that doesn't even include the the pieces of gold. And it also mentions 10 changes of raiment. You and I probably have more than 10 changes of clothing in here, but the word here for raiment, it refers to holiday suits. These are nice pieces of clothing. These are top-of-the-line pieces of clothing. And so they would be worth a ton to any individual. And so armed with the king's letter and this gift, Naaman heads into Israel to request permission to meet with Elijah. Verse 6, And he, Naaman, brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when the letter has come unto you, behold, this is what the letter says, Behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man descend unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeks a quarrel against me. (laughs) Some of these guys, of course, were not going to meet in heaven because they're not believers. Jehoram's not a believer. But man, sometimes you just want to sit down with some of these folks in the Bible and go, really? Really? That's the first thing that you think? What I find interesting is that the king of Syria assumes that Jehoram, the king of Israel, would work side by side with a man who can cure diseases. Like he assumes that that's a good guy to have around, you know? Isn't it sad that Jehoram refused to see the obvious blessings that would come from working with Elijah? instead of turning to false prophets who told him what he wanted to hear? Well, he tore his clothes. <laughs> the exact opposite. Someone comes to you and goes, hey, we hear your God can heal people from leprosy. And the funny thing is that this is not even an unheard of thing. Like there's a whole chapter in the Bible that says, here's how to identify leprosy and here's what you got to do with lepers. And then there's a chapter in Leviticus right after it that says, oh, and by the way, when I supernaturally heal the lepers, here's how you bring them back into society. So it's not like God hit him up with like something else, some other debilitating disease. He hit him up with the one disease that actually says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to heal this sometimes. He had Scripture to back it up. This is so sad because 
God's people were supposed to be a light to the world. But, but Jehoram doesn't know the Lord. He's not walking with the Lord. And so instead of seeing an opportunity, all he sees is an enemy. He tells, he's talking to somebody here, probably his counsel, you know, his advisory or whatever. He says, for consider, I pray you, and see how he, the king of Syria, seeks a quarrel against me. Jehoram reads this 100% wrong. But that's what happens when you and I lean on our own understanding. When I decide to discount God's love, God's power, and God's call on my life. God had a plan for Jehoram's life. You're going to be king of Israel, and I'm, I'm going to guide you through that. And Jehoram said, I don't need you to do that. I got this. I'm going to do this my way. I don't need your power. I've got my own power. I don't need your love. And we discount God's love, God's power, and his call on our life, and we lean on our own understanding. We respond to opportunities to trust God like this. How do you respond to conundrums in life that require a supernatural answer. There have been so many times in my life when I've encountered a situation where I look around and I'm in a box. I'm in a corner and there's no way out. And I'm not the type of person that doesn't go down without swinging. I'm the type of person that's going to fight to the very end. I don't give up. It's just my, my personality, my nature. I'm, I am a fighter, not a back down type of guy. And so when I get in situations like that, and you feel like you're boxed in like that, you get really antsy. And I've been in those moments where I'm like, ah, what are you, what's going on? There's no way out. How do you respond to conundrums in life that require a supernatural answer? The fact that I'm still here today is evidence that, well, God had a supernatural answer to some of those corners I was backed into. How do you respond? Do you tend to regard God's involvement and ability as unworthy of consideration? <laughs> I remember me and Beverly, and many of you have heard me tell this story too many times. But we were at Bible college. We were engaged, and her car had all sorts of issues, and this was going to be how we were going to get home back. We were in California at school. We are going to get back to Florida, get married, and all this kind of stuff, and found out what it was going to be. It was a transmission. It was going to be like $2,500. And I remember turning to Bev, and she's like, well, the Lord's going to take care of us. He's going to provide for us. I said, what? Is he going to provide us with a car? All snarky. Why are you being stupid? So I convinced her for us to make the decision to go into debt to get the car repaired. That car always gave us problems. And at our wedding, just a few weeks later, somebody walked right up to me and said, well, God told me to give you my car. It wasn't just a car either. It was a convertible. <laughs> it's almost like the Lord's like, it's narky with your bride-to-be. We'll see who laughs last. Do you tend to regard God's involvement and ability as unworthy of consideration? Or do you see it? Do you see that box as an opportunity to trust the Lord? Well, when a king tears his clothes, it tends to make headlines. And since Elijah lives in the city, he finds out. And so in verse 8, it says, And it was so, when Elijah the man of God heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, it says that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore have you rent your clothes? Why did you tear your clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. I've never had a prophet or like someone like Elijah come to me and go, Why did you freak out? My wife has, but 
The Holy Spirit has gently whispered similar words to me many times in the course of my life. And after the Lord comes through for me, I'll very often shake my head and ask myself the same question. Why did you panic, Will? Like, I think what happens in the moment is because we don't see an avenue of escape or, or rescue or, or solution that all of a sudden it feels like everything's at an end right there. When the truth is you're going to go to bed, you're going to go to sleep, and you're going to wake up. And you're going to probably do that the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And whatever looks like it is today, there's no guarantees it'll be exactly the same tomorrow. And very often I found that the Lord has already gone way before me. And no, maybe he didn't have a solution for me right on that day. But there was three months later or a week later or a couple days later. Why did I panic? I asked myself, why did I lean on my own understanding again? Why didn't I think God loved me enough to be involved in the situation? And why didn't I trust God's power to do things that I and others can't? I love Israel, uh, Elisha's response. He says, let him now come to me. Instead of assuming the worst, Jehoram, this is what your response should have been. At the very least, Jehoram could have asked Elijah for counsel. What do I do? I got this letter. I feel like it's, it's a nasty way to provoke a war with me. You know, he sends his top commander to heal him, and I can't do that. Elijah could have helped him and said, well, let's give, let me give you a different perspective. The least he could have done. Didn't do any of that. And so Elijah says, send it to me. And he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. Something you should already know. <laughs> but he'll know it. God would not let Jehoram's unbelief keep Naaman from the blessing that God wanted to give to him. Before we move on to verse 9, note this, that a slave girl ripped from her home believed in the goodness and the power of God more than a man who lived in a palace and had almost anything he desired. If you are waiting for the right circumstance before you'll follow or you'll trust the Lord, you're going to be waiting until your last breath because the problem of trust never lies with the Lord. Never. So I'm just not, you know, I'm not sure I can trust God because he, no, no, no. It's never a he. It's always a me. <laughs> it's always a me. Well, verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariot, and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. He comes with all the pomp and circumstance. And how does Elijah match it? Verse 10. And Elijah sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall come again to you, and you shall be clean. Goodbye. No invitation inside, no big show, no acknowledgement of who Naaman was or of his position in life. He doesn't even say hi. All he gives him is instructions and a promise. Go do this, and this is what will happen. Now, Elijah is not necessarily in the habit of doing this with people. He walked all the way to the Shunammite woman's house to help her son, even though the day was half gone. So he's not a lazy man. So why couldn't he be bothered to come to the door and give the instructions himself? Well, that's because God is interested in more than just healing Naaman. God wants Naaman's heart. And so Naaman's going to see that the prophet's job isn't to heal people. 
The prophet's job was to declare God's word. It's the Lord that heals people. God's word was enough for the slave girl to walk with the Lord through her trials. But at the beginning, it's not enough for Naaman. Look at verse 11. But Naaman was wroth. It means he was furious. And he went away. You know, he doesn't go not to the river. He has no plans of going and taking a bath in the Jordan. He went away and he said, behold, I thought. I was telling myself, I wonder how this will play out. And he'd already had it in his mind how it was going to play out. He will surely come out to me and stand. And the word there, stand, means to take his stand like an official manner. Like he would come and the door would slam open. And he'd go, dun, dun, dun. Elijah is my name. Profiting's my game. <laughs> He expected some type of demonstration. And then, you know, he would, he says here, uh, lost my spot, where are we? Verse 11, he said that, and surely he would take his stand and then he'd call in the name of the Lord his God. Note, not Naaman's God. That's why Elijah couldn't do it this way. He'll call in the name of the Lord his God. He'll strike his hand over the place. He's going to wave his hand to and fro over me, you know, and recover the leper. Talk about melodrama. Me and this guy are definitely long lost relatives somehow. I read this and I'm like, that's me. <laughs> that's 100% me. Lord, you know, I'm crying out to you. We need you to come through in this matter. And then you pick it all in your mind. And the Lord just is like, ah, I'm not doing it that way at all. We read in Isaiah 55 for our scripture reading about how the Lord says, My ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. See, we operate with the Lord when we're leaning on our own understanding as if, like, we partner with Him in, like, the how. You know, it's like kind of, we go, okay, God, here's, here's the options. You got A, you got B, you got C. I totally surrender to you whichever option you want to pick, right? When you read Isaiah 55 in its context, Isaiah's writing to a nation, the nation of Judah, was constantly taking matters into their own hands, and as a result, they were incurring God's judgment. Too often, the kings of Judah would tell prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know, what are we supposed to do, just trust God? And the answer to that question is, yes. Yes, you're supposed to just trust God. You do what he calls you to do, you be obedient, but then you trust his promise. You trust God, and you know what you're, you do what you're supposed, you know you're supposed to do, and God will honor that. Now, Naaman's an unbeliever, so we shouldn't be surprised that he's thinking like this. But we aren't supposed to think like that. If you're a believer here, you're not supposed to think like that. Our job is not to try to figure out what God is doing. We, our job is to trust and obey. Well, verse 13, I'm glad. Oh, well, he goes on in verse 12. He's still ranting. It says, are not Abana and Farpar, these are two rivers. One runs right through Damascus still today. The Abana and then the Farpar is a little bit south of Damascus. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I would probably agree with them. I've seen the Jordan, and it's a muddy, unimpressive river. Honestly. Like I went over there and I'm like, cool, we're going to the Jordan. And I walked down to the steps and it was literally from here to the other side was me to the first row here and you couldn't see anything because it just looked brown. And I was like, oh, 
I kind of understand my name is going, I'm not going in there. I was like, people get baptized here? They're like, no, they go further up where it's not so muddy. May I not wash in them and be clean? You see, to him it made no sense. Trying to figure out, why would God do it this way? It makes no sense. And so it says he left in a rage. He was furious, wasted my time. Now verse 13, and his servants came near and spoke unto him. This is why you don't want to try to do life alone because you make really bad mistakes when you do it, you're doing, trying to do it alone. Servants came near and spoke unto him and said, my father, a term of respect for those with a lower status in society back then. My father, if the prophet had bid you do some great thing, would you not have done it? Like if he said, climb a thousand hills, would you not have done it? How much rather then when he says to you, wash and be clean? This advice is so reasonable. I mean, it's, it's polite, but it hits the target. You're not thinking this through correctly. How hard is it to do what God's asking you to do? But there's the rub, isn't it? Why must I do what God says? That's the rub. Most of the things God's asking us to do are not that hard. But why must I do what God says? God says makes no sense. The Lord says to the unbeliever, really simple, repent and believe. But they will try anything except that. I'll say a thousand prayers. I'll make sure I go to all the special services I'm supposed to go to. I'll make sure I follow these five pillars. The unbeliever will latch onto anything. It's way harder, way more energy and effort. And they do this, do this, do this, do this. Keep all these laws, keep all these sacraments. All right. I'll do it. The Lord says, repent and believe. And we go, ah, why do I got to do that? That makes no sense. The Lord tells us to lose our lives. And he says, you'll find it. But so often we're clinging to our lives, aren't we? Holding on to it for dear life. You see, like the slave girl and the king, Naaman has an opportunity to stop doing things his way and to start trusting the Lord. And I'm so glad he makes the right choice. Look at verse 14. Well, then went he down and he dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Can you imagine what this must have been like? I mean, there's no crowd there except for his servants. There's no efficient. Nobody dunking him down seven times. No pomp, no circumstance. Just a sinner separated from God, following the Lord's instructions and hoping in the Lord's promise. And so, when he comes out of that water healed, guess what? He knew it was the Lord who did it. Look at verse 15. And he returned to the man of God. Jordan's nowhere near Samaria, by the way. This is a long trip there, a long trip back. He returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him. So Elijah actually meets him this time. And he said, this is Naaman, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. You see, Naaman learned something oh so important, something life-changing by doing it this way. He learned the Lord, the Jehovah, the God of Israel is the only Lord. 
He learned that the Lord is the real deal. And he can say, I know it because I encountered it. When I see so much anger at religion out there from humanity, mankind is right to be dissatisfied with religion because religion is a fate. It enslaves men. In contrast, the living God is real and he offers us something meaningful. Guys, we are not out there peddling religion. We're not peddling an organization. We are sharing the awesome truth that you can know Jesus Christ. Now, the natural reaction to God's goodness is gratitude. And so he wants to bless Elisha for being the faithful messenger. So he says to him, I know now. I get it now. Therefore, I pray you, take a blessing of your servant. I want to pay you for this. I want to give you a present or a gift. This would be the silver, the gold, the clothes. It was common in almost all cultures back then to give a priest or a prophet a payment when they gave you a blessing or if they gave you a favorable oracle. Can you tell me what the, what the God says or what the gods say? You know, and they would, you'd get, if it was favorable, it would be like, all right, man, thanks. And then you'd slip them a 20. Kind of like the first tipping. Naaman assumes, well, this must be the proper protocol in Israel too. But I love how Elijah he tells him that the living God's servants don't operate that way. Verse 16, but he said, as the Lord lives, I mean, you've just discovered this, the, the, the God I follow is real. And as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Now, when he says, before whom I stand, that's a word Naaman finally understood. All the other things he didn't get, but this he finally understood because the same word is used in verse 1 to describe his role to his king. He stood before the king. He was the king's servant. And so he understands when Elijah says this that I'm just the messenger, man. I'm just the Lord's servant. And messengers don't get paid to deliver messages. Not extra, at least. If Elijah took the money... It would have moved the attention off Naaman's newfound relationship with God and made it comparable to idolatry. What Elijah needed to do was he needed to leave Naaman with the Lord, not himself. And in the end, Naaman understands because in verse 17, we see he asks for something from Elisha instead, something that will help him continue to walk with the Lord after he goes away from Israel and goes back home to Syria. Verse 17, and Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray you, be given to your servant two mules' burden of earth? For your servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, except unto the Lord. God had told his people, the Israelites, to make simple altars of rocks or dirt. Naaman might be a Gentile, but he identifies as part of God's people now. I just want to make a simple altar. You see, the Lord is no longer Elijah's God to Naaman. And so he asks the prophet if the Lord, he says, listen, can I take some dirt? And we assume the answer is yes. And then he says in verse 18, in this thing, the Lord pardon your servant. I'm asking you to, if the Lord will pardon me, that when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there and he leans on my hand, in other words, I have to be there in an an official status. I have to be there as his right hand. And when I bow myself down in the house of Ramon, 
he says, the Lord pardon your servant in this thing. He goes, when I go back, I'm not going to offer offerings to anyone but the Lord, but because of my position, I have to go into this temple. It's a pagan temple. I got to be there with my king, and when I'm at his right side and I have to bow down like him, no, I'm not bowing down to that God, and may the Lord forgive me just for being there. I love that. He says, will the Lord forgive me if I perform these official functions? I love Elisha's answer. He says to him, go in peace. Go in peace. And so he departed from him for a little way. Go in peace, it's all one word. It means shalom. Shalom. The word shalom, it means completeness, wholeness, wellness. It means to be satisfied. He says to him, Everything's good with God, Naaman. You're whole now. All is right between you and the Lord. And is there any peace better than that? I can tell you, in some of the most difficult points in my life, one of the things that kept me on the right path was never wanting to be able to look in the mirror and know that I was not right with the Lord, to know that I, was, I would not have that peace with God. Is there anything, any peace better than the one you can have with the Lord? No, there is not. And that's why, that's how believers have faced horrible circumstances through history, how they face things like death and and illness and suffering with courage and godliness and even joy in their heart. It's because even though the worst thing may have happened to them, a most needed thing was in perfectly good shape, in perfectly good shape. You see, we say it. Your last exhale here is your first inhale there. You close your eyes here and you open them there. But that's a big difference from saying it and from believing it when you're in it. Well, Naaman starts home, but he doesn't get very far. It says in verse 20, but Gehazi, dun, dun, dun. But Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, Behold, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian in not receiving at his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him, and I will take somewhat of him. He is hot. He is mad. Everybody got mad for a bit. Naaman's mad when Elisha gives the instructions he does, but then he obeys and he's healed and he comes back. He's, he's so, so happy. He, he has so much gratitude in his heart. Now Gehazi is mad. He's like, you turned out what? The word there, spared, it means to cancel or refrain from collecting a debt. He actually saw the Syrian, Naaman, that he's in debt to us. We did this for him. And notice how he calls him this Syrian our enemy, this foreigner. You see, Gehazi believed that Naaman owed them for the healing, but he's also bitter that a Gentile and an enemy has walked away experiencing God's goodness, something he felt he deserved, but Naaman clearly did not. And so instead of trusting that God had a good plan for him, Gehazi decides to go take matters into his own hands. He says, but as the Lord lives, and again, remember, that's a strong Israeli oath, but it's not coming from a spiritual motive. His words simply convey how serious he is about getting what he believes he was owed. As surely as God is alive, I'm going to chase after him, I'm going to take something from him. Elisha might have been training him to be the prophet who would take his place someday, but Gehazi 
missed one of the most important lessons about leadership. Servants don't take, they give. They don't take. Listen, you can claim to lead your wife or lead your kids or anyone else, any other group of people, but if you're a taker, you're not a leader. If you're a taker, you're not a leader because leaders are servants. Well, verse 21, so Gehazi followed after, literally means chased after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from his chariot to meet him and said, all is well. The word lighted down is not doesn't convey the image. It means to prostrate yourself. Naaman is still so grateful, so humbled when he sees Gehazi running towards him. He gets down off his chariot and he bows down to this guy. And he says, is everything okay? And Gehazi says, verse 22, all is well. Everything's fine. My master has sent me saying, behold, things were different before, but behold, something's changed. Even now, There have come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets, so give them. Don't give us anything, but give them, I pray you, a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. To make the lie make sense, since Elijah had refused payment personally, he says it's not for us, it's for somebody else. One talent of silver, two changes of clothing, that's how Gehazi feels like that's enough for me to get my fair share. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, it's in a section of Scripture where Peter's talking about false prophets. In 2 Peter 2, verse 3, he says this about false prophets. And through covetousness shall they with deceptive words exploit you, make merchandise of you. False prophets seek to turn grateful and generous believers into a means of personal gain. Naaman is a thankful new believer who just wants to please the Lord, and he trusts Gehazi, and he falls for the lie. Verse 23, and Naaman said, be content, which means let it please you to take two talents. You ask for one, take two. And he urged him. That's the same word that was used to describe his words to Elijah. He urged him to take the, the, the payment, but Elijah didn't give in because there was a principle behind Elijah's decision. Gehazi had laid those principles aside to take matters into his own hands. And so he bound the two talents of silver in two bags and with the two changes of garments. And he laid them upon two of his servants. He makes two of his servants carry all this stuff, and they carried them before him. And when he, Gehazi, came to the tower, the word tower there is actually the word for hill. Samaria was built on a hilltop. That's where Gehazi lived. And so when they got basically to his house, it says that he took them from their hand, took the the money, and he took the clothing and bestowed them in the house. And then he let the men go, and so they left. Stashed everything in a safe place. He said, all right, you guys can go. Thanks a bunch. I'm in the clear. Verse 25. But he went in and he stood before his master. The word stood means he presented himself for service. Master, do you need anything? And Elijah said to him, where'd you come from, Gehazi? And Gehazi said, your servant went, King James says, no whither. Literally, it means I went neither here nor there. I haven't been anywhere, dude. I've been here the whole time, Elijah. And Elijah, verse 26, said to him, 
did not my heart go with you when the man turned again from his chariot to meet you? Did not my innermost being, everything in me knew what you were doing when you were doing it? Now, one would think a guy who worked for a man who he saw raise the dead and heal a leper, a guy who he's seen the Lord reveal tons of things to him hundreds of times, you would think that guy might think twice about hiding something from him. This is one of those moments where if Gehazi's in heaven, I'm going to sit down with him and go, bro, what were you thinking? But that's the reality of it. We know God sees everything. We know of people's lives who've been destroyed because their deeds were exposed. But then we go and make the same decisions Gehazi did. Listen, every temptation, if you don't hear anything tonight, hear this. Every temptation is also an opportunity to believe that what God says is more valuable than giving into the temptation. Every temptation is also an opportunity to believe that what God says is more valuable than giving into that temptation. And that truth has kept me out of much trouble over the years, and I've learned more and more to trust it. That what God is offering me is more valuable than what I'll experience if I give into the temptation. And so I ask you tonight do you believe that, that what God says is more valuable than giving into temptation? Well, after exposing the lie, Elisha asked Gehazi a question one more opportunity to trust God. He says to him, Is it a time to receive money? to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen, men servants, maid servants. And what if somebody else comes to us and offers payment? Gehazi, is this the new plan? Is this what you feel like we're owed? Is, is this a time for this? Is this a season for this? There may be a time to receive a gift from a grateful believer when you bless them, but the season these guys were living in was not it. False prophets and priests roamed the land, exploiting God's people for gain, and many no longer believed in the Lord because of it. If Elijah and his students were going to win their unbelieving nation back to the Lord, they have to be different. They have to show their culture something different. And that meant turning down payment for serving the Lord. This is a question is that requires an answer. You ever do that with your kids? You ask them a question, they just stand there and like, this is one that's not rhetorical. But sometimes you're like, did you think it was okay to talk to your mother like that? No, I didn't want an answer. Well, the answer's obvious. But then there are times you ask them and they just stand there and like, this is one that requires an answer. This is not a rhetorical question. This is a question that requires an answer. But Gehazi stubbornly says nothing. He refuses to admit his lie and he refuses to trust the Lord still. And so he falls under judgment. Verse 27, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cleave unto you and unto your seed, your descendants forever. And he went out from Elijah's presence, a leper as white as snow. What's the therefore for? Well, because, not just because he lied, not just because he took the stuff, but because he refused to repent when God gave him an opportunity with a question. He stuck to his guns. It's like he's saying, you're right, there, there's time to take it. And so he says, all right. The leprosy that Naaman had, now it's yours, buddy. The word there, cleave, it means to permanently join together, to superglue. There's going to be no healing for you, Gehazi. This is not like temporary discipline. No healing for you and your descendants, they're going to carry on this disease as well. And he goes out, leaves Elisha, 
we'll meet Gehazi again, but never, never alongside Elijah again. Now, I know when, when I read this, it is tempting to think that God's being overly harsh with Gehazi. Or maybe to think, well, it's unfair for his descendants to experience leprosy because of his sin. A similar accusation is made when God forbid Moses from entering the promised land because he struck the rock. That sounds kind of harsh, God. I mean, this, is, this guy's been faithful to you so many times. But these two crimes have something in common because both Moses and Gehazi gave people an impression that God was a certain way when God is not that way. Moses gave God's people the impression that God was mad at them when God was not. And Gehazi gave Naaman, this new believer, the impression that God is greedy. James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Let there not be many teachers among you, for you will receive the stricter judgment. Leaders are held to a higher standard and therefore subject themselves to a greater discipline when they fall. And the measure of their discipline must be heavy enough so that no one concludes God is like the way that they misrepresented him. And so this judgment will serve as a reminder that God is not greedy. That's not why he has people. Well, in this chapter, we see four people had an opportunity to trust the Lord. Two of them had ideal circumstances, Gehazi and the king of Israel. Two of them were in difficult circumstances, a slave girl and Naaman. Two of them had plenty of hope for a bright future, and two of them had very little hope for a bright future. But the two who had it all refused to trust the Lord when the opportunity came, and the two who had already lost so much decided to trust the Lord. It's interesting, Jesus references Naaman in Luke 4, 27, after those in his hometown of Nazareth refused to believe his claim to be the Messiah. And Jesus says these words, there were tons of leopards in Israel, but God chose to heal this Gentile. Why? Because he trusted the Lord. Jesus implies that God wanted to heal lots of other lepers in Israel, but his people wouldn't follow his instructions and wouldn't hope in his promise like Naaman did. So, let's not be like them. God gives us many opportunities throughout the week to trust him. Let's be like the slave girl. Let's be like Naaman. Even if you're going through a rough time, let's be those who trust the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Oh, Jesus, I remember the words of a dear friend of mine who's with you now who said, It's not hard to trust the Lord because the Lord is never untrustworthy. Lord, we're the ones that make it hard, not you. And so this evening, you know every heart. You know if there's areas that you've been giving us an opportunity to trust you and we've just been saying, no, I've got this. I'm gonna take it in my own hands. Or maybe we've even, we've rejected you. We've pushed you aside. We've, We've not taken into account the fact that you love us, the fact that you're powerful and the fact that you want to be involved. Lord, We don't want any of us to leave here tonight not trusting you. So we give that thing to you or those things to you, whatever it is that we've been holding on to, that we've not been looking to you and saying, Lord, I know you love me. I know you can work in this situation and I'm going to simply trust you. I leave it at your feet. Lord, for everyone who might be doing that right now, I pray throughout the week as it's tempting to try to pick that thing back up, Lord, they just keep laying it at your feet, knowing you love them, you're powerful enough, and you want to be involved in their life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.